So a native of Istanbul, Turkey, my guest Ozan Barol grew up in a family of no English speakers. He learned English as a second language and then moved to the United States himself at 17 to go to Cornell University and major in astrophysics. And while he was there, he ended up serving on the operations team for the 2003 Mars Exploration Rovers Project that sent two rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, to Mars. He built stuff that went to the red planet. How cool is that? And he wrote code that snaps photos of the Martian surface. And he was on track to build this powerhouse career in the world of scientists, a literal rocket scientist. But leaving Cornell, Ozan pivoted and he ended up going to law school, graduating first in his class, earning the highest GPA in his law school's history. And then he became a law professor, teaching at Lewis and Clark Law School in his 20s and becoming the youngest tenured professor. And while teaching law, though, there was always this deeper driver. The rocket scientist in him was on a mission to share that scientific process that challenged everything and opened minds to possibility and helped cultivate a mindset to influence others to make giant leaps on Earth. He shared this philosophy in a really wonderful book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, Simple Strategies You Can Use to Make Giant Leaps in Work and Life. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So you've been in Portland for a while right now, but originally from Istanbul, yep. grew up there, I guess, in the 80s and 90s, which is really interesting time to, to, to be there as well. It's a place I've never yet been, and I'm always curious when I get to talk to somebody who's actually like not just been there for a while, but grown up there. Mm-hmm. What was your, just what was your sense of, of sort of like spending your formative years there? especially at a time where there was so much transformation in the country. Oh, for sure. I mean, Istanbul is such an interesting city. First of all, it's such a beautiful city. I mean, I've, I've traveled to so many countries and, and, and I know I'm a little biased having been born there, but it's such a breathtakingly beautiful city. Um, and, and I love that it sits at this intersection, both geographically and I think culturally as well between the East and the West. And you can see that everywhere. I mean, you can see that in the buildings, you can see that in the people, you can see it in the culture. There's such a, a, a mix of sorts. And, and so it was a really interesting place to, to grow up for that reason, I think. And it's a huge city. It's now about 17 million people. It, it was interesting growing up there. I think the education system is 
leaves a lot to be desired. Um, it was really conformist. I mean, I think education, public education is conformist pretty much everywhere in the world, but the Turkish education system took conformity to the to a whole new level. <laughs> uh, I remember, you know, our primary school principal. So you would each get assigned a number when you first started primary school. And our principal would call us by that number instead of our name. So it was like, you know, branding livestock basically for identification purposes. Like I wasn't Ozan, I was 154. And that was my number, um, as not my actual number, but that was that was what what the the culture was like and that was that was hard for me and i think that sort of brought me to a place where i couldn't fathom a future there primarily for that reason and i started to develop interest outside of outside of the education system just as a way to escape that enforced conformity like i fell in love with science fiction books and fell in love with astronomy and that sort of became my escape from the the realities of the education system that I found myself in, which was just at odds with the way that my parents had raised me and certainly at odds with the way that, that I think I was built because I, I love to imagine, I love to create and there was no room for that. Yeah. It's sort of, I mean, just the knowing that you had an identifier that was a number, that one fact speaks so much about the yeah. entire ethos. And the value set, uh, you know, around conformity and control, um, rather than, okay, so let's sort of, you know, plant seeds and let people start to figure out, you know, like what is fascinating to them and how do you move into the mm -hmm. world and do something with that, which is not exactly this school system that exists uh, to a great extent in, in this country either, but it sounds like that really took it to the extreme. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I should say you're right, Jonathan, that like even in this country, the, I think the education system stifles curiosity. Because if you look at children, children are naturally driven. Children are naturally curious about the world. Uh, but once they enter this education system, that's very much influenced by the industrial age, where you've got this authority figure in front of the classroom. And the job of the authority figure is to impart knowledge and the job of the students is to just sit there absorb knowledge memorize it and then spit it back out on a standardized test somewhere and so all of these facts get uh, etched into your brain and of course you forget them after you take the exam but it's so out of touch with the way that the world works you know in the real world Memorization doesn't get you far. Uh, the real world is all about finding your own problems, defining problems, reframing problems, asking questions that nobody else has, has asked before. But in schools, you get a problem set, for example, even in college, right? You, you do problem sets as in the problem is already set. The problem has been defined for you by another person and your job is to solve it and so wildly disconnected from how the real world operates, or your job is to not just take problems, but create problems yourself, reframe them, redefine them to be able to illuminate answers that other people haven't seen. Yeah. I mean, it's so fascinating, right? The, um, so much of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, once we get out into the, you know, our quote, productive life is about problem identification, mm -hmm. you know? And when I think about a lot of the, um, the most common thinking systems that have sort of emerged in the world of design and innovation over the last decade or so, design thinking, human-centered um, design, you know, the, the first step is always empathy. And what they're looking for is, before we start to even conceive of potential solutions, do we even, are, are we even focused on the right question? Sure. And that is something that is so rarely taught. I feel like actually in the world of design, there's a huge focus on that, but outside of that, I wonder what other domains sort of academically even sort of like um, plant that seed. There's one example that came to mind from the academic world. It's from a class, a Stanford class in entrepreneurship that um, I think her name is Tina Selig. Yeah, sure. She does this $5 challenge. I don't know if you've, if you've heard of this, but it's, it's a really interesting way to, I think, illustrate what we've been talking about here in terms of the importance of defining or redefining the problem. She walks into the classroom, she divides the, the class into teams, and she says each team gets $5 in, in seed funding, and your job is to make as much money as possible in two hours, and then give a three-minute presentation to the class. So you've got five bucks, as much money as possible in two hours, and then a three-minute presentation. In most teams, the teams that don't do well, they do the sort of the typical thing. They they take the $5 and 
they buy materials for a car wash or they buy, you know, stuff you need to, to, to do a lemonade stand like you're six years old. Those teams don't do very well. The teams that do better reframe the problem more broadly. So instead of asking, you know, how do we make the most amount of money with $5? They say, how do we make the most amount of money if we start with absolutely nothing? Because just because a $5 bill is sitting in front of you doesn't mean that it's an effective tool for the job. It's like that saying, right? If you're a hammer, every, every problem looks like a nail. So they reframe the problem more broadly and say, how do we make the most amount of money if we start with absolutely nothing? Because the five bucks is basically a worthless resource. So one team that did particularly well, they, um, they made reservations at popular Silicon Valley restaurants and then sold the reservation times to wealthy executives who wanted to skip the wait. And they made a, a few hundred dollars in just two hours. But then the team that came in first place framed the problem even more differently than that. They realized that both the two hours and the, the five dollars were not the most valuable resource in their toolbox. Rather, the most valuable tool was that three-minute presentation time they had in front of a captivated class. So they sold that three-minute time to a company that was interested in recruiting Stanford students <laughs> and walked away with like $700. And so I love that example because it is a rare example from the education system where students are being asked to, quote unquote, and I hate that phrase, the cliche of thinking outside the box, but really step outside the box and, and see the problem in a different light as opposed to having the problem defined by, by somebody else. Yeah, I love that. I remember first hearing about Tina doing that experiment. And the other thing that popped out of me that I thought was fascinating about it was the sort of the use of a decoy constraint. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of like she throws this $5 bill in, really knowing, like you said, it's, it, it's kind of just, it's like what magicians do with wands. You know, right. it's, it is a way to just distract your attention. Right. Rather than saying, okay, um, you know, it's like, what do we do with the $5 rather than, okay, so the universe is available to us. Just what do we do? Exactly. But when you, you create this sort of like fake constraint, it all of a sudden, it just binds you, you know, and, and it just, it shrinks everything that you would conceive of. It's fascinating. Um, so you grew up in Istanbul. You end up like a 17-ish coming over here and, and land in Cornell studying astrophysics. And, and while there, I guess, end up also working on the team that sends the, um, the rover to Mars. Mm -hmm. It must have been, a, as a kid in your teens or early 20s, to be working on a project that you know is literally leaving the planet and going somewhere else must have been just a, a really amazing experience for you. It was incredible. Uh, and especially the transformation from my perspective. You know, here I was daydreaming about astronomy from our small apartment in Istanbul. And then fast forward like four weeks and I had front row seats to the action. Before I arrived at Cornell when I was still in Turkey, I was just researching what the astronomy department was up to and found out that a professor, his name is Steve Squires, was in charge of a NASA-led mission to Mars. And there was no job listing, but I just emailed them out of the blue um, and expressed my burning desire to work for him. I taught myself how to do computer programming in, in high school. And so that came in really handy. And he invited me in for an interview and, and I got the job on the operations team uh, and did everything from you know help select landing sites to design things that went to Mars. My senior thesis was programming the algorithms that the rover, the cameras on the rover would use to snap photos of the surface. So it was just, it was, I mean, to be able to go from again, where I was to that was just incredible. Uh, and then seeing the, the path that the rovers took to initially, the, the plan was to send just one rover, which and ended up being two, going back to our discussion from earlier about reframing the problem. The administrator of NASA at the time just asked this question that none of us had thought about asking. He said, what if we send two rovers instead of one? Up until that point, NASA had just been sending one rover to Mars every two years and crossing their fingers that nothing bad would happen along the way. And two out of three Mars missions had failed when I started working on working on our project. And that simple question, uh, we ended up sending two rovers instead of one we had designed them to last for 90 days. Uh, and I still get goosebumps when I say this, but Opportunity, so their, their names were Spirit and Opportunity, and Opportunity ended up roving the red planet for 15 years into its 90-day lifetime, uh, which, is, which is really incredible. So it was such a, such a gem to be able to work on that mission 
at a you know a relatively young age yeah i mean on so many levels um to be brought into that but also even the way that you ended up with that opportunity i mean there's something clearly inside of you that is willing to risk yourself socially um because it was just fascinating because for you know like a guy who we started the conversation you shared a bit about how you were sort of more on the introvert side of the spectrum and yet it didn't stop you from seeing something that sounded fascinating to you looking and realizing there's no listed opportunity to do this but still saying but maybe that's not real yeah let me just go out there and completely put myself out there and see because who knows and i have to say i almost did not send that email um mm -hmm. I'm, I'm glad you raised that because i wrote the email and then this voice came up in my head uh you know the voice of the inner critic who basically said like who are you you know you're a skinny kid with a funny name from a country halfway around the globe what can you possibly contribute and i i almost did not hit send and then i asked myself two questions which i still ask myself on a regular basis the first was what's the worst that can happen and the worst that can happen of course is that you know just never hear from him again right he just ignores me and and that's that and what's the best that can happen um, and then the best that can happen is what actually ended up happening, which is that I, I got a, a pinch me now job working on the operations team for this, for this Mars rover mission. And, and so those two questions stayed with me, but I almost did not send that email. If I hadn't sent that email, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah. I, I, I'm so fascinated by the concept of sliding doors in moments like yeah. that. You know, what's interesting also is that you, you say yes to the education, you say yes to this opportunity. You devote yourself to a number of years at a great university studying one particular area. And it's an area where normally people stay in that field. Like the, you know, the quote usual path would be to then go get your master's, get your PhD right. and either work in industry or teach. And a lot of people, I think, who start out in that path, especially who expressed a genuine interest in it, which it seems like you did, well, they're all in, like they're, yeah. they're, they're all in on one of those two paths. You took a really divergent next step. I did. I went to law school. <laughs> and, you know, and I think you're so right. And this is the sunk cost fallacy at work, right? Once you've devoted time, money, resources into something. And this is where I think some of the underbelly of the, the dark underbelly of grit comes about as well. I think grit is really important. But if you're persisting on doing the wrong thing, the thing that's not right for you, then grit is not good. And for me, you know, it was a realization that as much as I loved working on the Mars mission, I did not love the classes I was taking. Uh, they were way too theoretical for me, which is really interesting. You know, astrophysics is supposed to be about how the world works. And it was so disconnected from reality in so many different ways, in a way that the Mars mission wasn't. The Mars mission was like as practical as things could get, but my classes I really didn't like. And so, going and getting a master's or PhD would have been torture for me. Um, so I started to look elsewhere and ended up taking a class that was taught by a Cornell law professor, but he taught it only for undergrads. And, you know, we read real cases and he used a Socratic method. He taught it like a real law school class. And, and I fell in love with it. It was like a breath of fresh air, you know, reading about these disputes between two real people, two real businesses in a way that, you know, theoretical physics was not. And so I ended up switching paths and, and going to law school. And I think that, as you said, it strikes a lot of people as odd. Um, and I don't view it that way because for a number of reasons. One is I think human beings change. So I could start with this deep founded interest in, in astronomy and then just lose interest over time and want to go try something else. Our lives are short, and if I can live multiple lifetimes in this one um, and dabble in different fields, it just makes life more interesting. And in this way, too, I can take concepts from astrophysics and apply them in seemingly disconnected fields. Like, So I went into law school, and at, at least at first blush on the surface, law and astrophysics seem like as different as two fields can be from one another. But there's actually quite a bit of overlap. You know, the critical thinking skills I picked up in college were directly applicable to, to the law. Being able to, you know, one of the things that scientists do is see the problem from different perspectives and try to falsify themselves. Um, create an hypothesis, try to falsify it, which requires you to see that hypothesis from multiple perspectives. 
which is an invaluable skill in, in law because the best lawyers know the opposition's argument better than the opposition does. And that requires you to see the issue from multiple perspectives. And so my astrophysics training came in, came in handy there as well. Um, and then the final bit of this is I also approach life as a series of experiments. You know, I'll uh, come up with a hypothesis about what I might enjoy, and then I go try it out. And if it doesn't work, I change the hypothesis or I abandon it altogether. Uh, and I've done that in a, in a number of junctures. I went into law school, practiced law, and then left the practice of law to go teach and become a professor, which I've been doing for the past 10 years. And this will be my final year as a, as a law professor because I decided to leave academia, uh, shed that old skin one more time uh, to make room for the new to emerge. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi's starter pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere rib beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365-day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash G-L-P to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash G-L-P or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. Yeah, I, lo I love that approach. Super similar to the way I look at it. You know, when you just look at it as a series of experiments, then you forgive yourself when 
the reality doesn't prove out to match the assumptions, even if it takes years to do, or just when you kind of reach a point where you're like, you know what, I'm good. Yeah. You know, I remember years ago sitting down with Helene Godin, who had this fabulous 22 year career as a lawyer and, you know, like a great job in New York, power, fascinating, really interesting research. And she walked into the work one day and she's just like, I'm, I'm good. Mm -hmm. like I'm, I'm done. And, and, and she told the boss she was quitting and her boss said, what do you need? You know, it, 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 you know, money, what, whatever it is, a different. And she said, no, 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 it has nothing to, I love you. I, this is a great place. It's I'm just good. Like I'm done. It's time for me to move on to my next chapter. And I feel like when, when you, when you set the intention early on, you know, that look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to see what this feels like. Yeah. And if it feels good, I'll keep leaning into it. And, you know, if it starts not to, then I'm going to keep myself open to the possibility of moving somewhere else. You, know, you brought up the notion of grit and how it is, it's kind of been hailed, you know, and especially in the world of, of business over the last decade as, you know, it's the thing everybody wants to cultivate. But I completely agree. There's a really interesting dark side to the concept of grit because so much good stuff happens when you get two steps into a 10, ten step process that you know leads you to a goal that you know you thought you really wanted and you realize the assumptions that led you to get two steps in have already been disproven right so why would you keep doing it and yet we're taught you know that that because that's the appropriate thing to do and to build this tool of grit um it's interesting i recently actually um sat down with angela duckworth behind grit and and I was asking her, I said, you know, the, the original research that she did on it you know, was um, she speaks about it as a state, but the mm -hmm. actual research is written up describing it as a trait. And I said, how do you, how do you view what this thing is now? She kind of said, neither. She said, I, I now look, I look at it as a tendency hmm. and like any tendency, it, it can express itself in a healthy and constructive way. And not so much. So it's, it's, I think it's a fascinating evolution. And um, I'm kind of fascinated with how people have, have latched onto this word as well. Um, I also see, you know, the way that you were saying that there's this really interesting flow between studying science and practicing law. Mm -hmm. um, so I went to law school, uh, practiced for about four or five years. And similar to you, the way it taught me to look at arguments, to look at the world, to deconstruct facts and circumstances when I decided to leave, people were like, well, how could you do that? You know, you went to law school, you did well, you have this amazing job. And, and I was just really happy with the tool set that I had accumulated and I knew it was time to move on. And it goes back also that that sunk cost fallacy right. is so life stifling in so many ways. Yeah, for sure. And then I think one component that also goes along with this, and I think why people are reluctant to do what you did, Jonathan, and leave the practice of law, or yeah, why I decided to leave academia is is ego. I think we tell ourselves a story, a story of our significance. And I told this story to myself. I think I stayed in academia for longer than I should because I was telling myself, or my ego was telling myself the story about what serious law professors do and don't do. And it took me so long to start a blog because I thought I would be ridiculed. And I was actually ridiculed by some of my colleagues, you know, this like sort of extracurricular activity that I was engaged in that wasn't publishing articles in peer review journals uh, and law reviews. And, and so shaking that off, because I have, I've had professor attached to my name for 10 years now. And so when I thought about shedding that particular skin and shedding that title, my ego was kicking and screaming and saying like, what are you doing? You know, what are you going to, who, more importantly, who are you going to be when you're no longer a professor? So I think ego plays a big role. There's a, um, there's a poem I love by Donna Markova. It's called, I will not die an unlived life. And uh, there's a line in there that I particularly love. She says something like, I choose to risk my significance so that what comes to me as seed can move on as blossom and what comes as blossom can grow as fruit. And so that phrase, particularly, I choose to risk my significance. Whenever I feel like my ego is getting in the way, those, those words come to me from the, from the depths of my subconscious. 
just reminding me that I've got nothing to lose. Mm, that is such a beautiful sentiment. Yeah, I love that. I'm kind of letting it land on me right now <laughs> as I'm thinking through some big moves. Um, yeah, I, I mean, when you think about uh, the role of ego in controlling all of our sort of like quote next moves, it is so at the center of, of so many things and so constraining to possibility and to really to just fully coming alive throughout the course of life. You know, one of, um, one of the things that I'm, that I'm fascinated by in your work also is sort of like um, you seem to carry this really meta lens on the way that you move through the world. So it's not just you think about things, but you think about how you think about things. Mm -hmm. And then you want to know about both of those levels of inquiry and then sort of deconstruct, like, what are, what are my methodologies? What am I aware of and not aware of? And then share that with the world. I'm curious, is that something, because it's kind of a unique thing. I've, I've seen that in people who have meditated for many, many years or really devoted themselves to those processes. Is this kind of been a part of you for a long time? Is this something that you've cultivated intentionally? That's a great question. Um, I don't know when it came into the picture. Uh, I think part of me thinks that it's been there all along. I was an only child, so I spent just a lot of time being alone. And when you're alone, uh, you have a lot of time to think and examine what you want and what you don't want. Um, and and I, you know, fortunately had parents who didn't get in my way and, you know, never said, oh, you can't do that. You know, people like you don't try to become an astronaut or don't try to, you know, work on a space mission. So it's not, I think on, on some level, it's always been there. There's definitely been periods of my life where I lost sight of that, uh, where I stopped examining my life. Um, I think practice of law was probably one of those periods where I was just so immersed in, you know, the lawyer mentality, 80 hour weeks and thinking of your life in six minute increments that I lost sight of, I think, what was really important to me. And I stopped examining myself, which really, I mean, it was exhausting. I practiced law for two years. And I just remember when I left the law firm, I like stopped working. And then I was in my apartment for just a week. I couldn't leave. I was running on stress hormones and, and I wasn't even aware of it. I mean, I was so unaware of my body and so disconnected from my body that I just did not realize how exhausted I was. Um, so I think it's been there. The examination part has been there, I think, all along, and it is aligned with my authentic self. But I've definitely lost sight of it in, in several periods of my life. And then I come back to it. And, and coming back to it is, is where the magic happens. And I, I find that it's it's something you need to be really intentional about, especially in this day and age where we're moving from one email to the next and one notification to the next and one meeting to the next. There is no room to pause and reflect and deliberate and just ask the basic question of like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Now, what is the purpose of me picking up my phone and going to the front page of the New York Times? What is the, what is the motivation behind that? And often there is none. It's just autopilot, you know, that's what you do when you pick up your phone, uh, when you have an election going on. But there isn't that, that reflection period of, okay, let me pause and really think through what I'm going to do next. Um, and basic questions like, what is my North Star in life? What is my mission? What is it that I want to accomplish? And, and one of my purposes is to help other people reimagine their lives and reimagine the status quo. And if I'm, if I'm aligned with that purpose, then it becomes easier, I think, to make the, some of the decisions that we've been talking about, like leaving academia, when I realize that, as you were saying, Jonathan, like, I'm good. Uh, I've been teaching the same classes now for, for 10 years, and, and my impact in the classroom is quite limited, not just because you know, I'm teaching the same subject matters, but also you have this environment where we're required to grade students on a curve, which creates this zero-sum atmosphere and totally impedes learning. You know, everything becomes about, is this going to be on the final? And, and looking at that and saying, you know what, I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to do that because I'm not learning. I'm not growing. 
and I don't want to do it because it's not moving the needle on on what I think is 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 my life's purpose. So yeah, there's that I think quote from Socrates or Plato, one of the one of the ancients about uh, how an unexamined life is not worth living, and that is something that I try to do, uh, and it definitely takes intention and carving out space for it uh, in this day and age where. You know, all of these notifications are screaming their 100 decibel sirens for attention at, at all hours of the day. Yeah, I completely agree. And how the overexamined life also can lead to a pretty neurotic and obsessive existence at the same time. For sure. There's like a, there's like a sweet <laughs> spot that we try and sort of navigate. You know, one of the things that comes up, and it's, this is something that you write about in your book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, is how we grapple with uncertainty. So this mm -hmm. is something I'm fairly intimately familiar with. I, I spent a lot of chunk of time about a decade ago diving into the research and writing a book around this. And, but a lot of these jumps that you're talking about, a lot of these sort of like being willing to move away from something that we know and then step out into Joseph Campbell's abyss where, you know, like it's just, we are in the unknown is something that is, that is where possibility lies, you know, and at the same time, it is where abject terror lies for so many people to talk to me a bit about this. Oh, for sure. I think, you know, we are in so many different ways wired to fear uncertainty. I think there is a genetic component to this where, you know, the unknown was threatening to our ancestors. If you didn't fear the, the unknown, you become lunch for, you know, a predator. And then it's reinforced that tendency to look for certainty and to lean into the known gets reinforced by the education system. You know, in, in school, there was one right answer, one right way to interpret history, one right curriculum. You see the, the final products, you see Newton's laws as if they arrived by some like grand divine visitation and not the years, the process that went into, which is the interesting part. And the uncertainty and so much unknown and so much trial and error. You don't read about, you know, Newton's experiments in alchemy, which, <laughs> failed spectacularly you you only read about his you know his laws of motion and so then you get on out into the real world and everybody's looking for certainty and everybody's looking for the one right answer that's going to be on the exam and so then life becomes a series of google searches and and you know three-step formulas and life hacks but there is so much beauty in uncertainty and that's where all progress happens, you know, all breakthroughs. If you look at scientific history from the discovery of DNA to X-ray to, to penicillin, it all happened in conditions of uncertainty. But when we grasp for, for certainty and for certain answers, you get into this mode of operating where the uncertainty becomes so threatening that you are just reluctant to take any steps to do anything where you don't know for sure what's going to happen. And that I think is quite paralyzing. That's why we just, you know, keep doing the same thing we were doing yesterday. That's why when I was a practicing lawyer and thinking about switching into academia, there was so much uncertainty for me. I didn't know if I would enjoy it. And, and so if, if uncertainty were a paralyzing force for me, I would still be practicing law. Um, and if I wasn't willing to, to dance with uncertainty, I'd still be doing that in, in San Francisco. And one, one framework, I think it's easier said than done to say, oh, embrace uncertainty and sort of be fine with it. I think for a lot of people, it sounds like you know being ordered to stay dry in a thunderstorm. It's just so against the way that we are conditioned. One framework that I find really helpful is, uh, is a distinction between one-way door decisions and two-way door decisions, which I write about in the book. One-way door decisions are the irreversible kind. And I think this is, this is what stops a lot of people in their tracks, is they assume that if they make a decision, if they enter this new room, if they move to a new city or you know, start a new career, and things don't work out as they envisioned, life as they know it is gonna come to an end. So it's, it's irreversible. But that assumption for most of our decision, decisions is incorrect. Because most of the decision, decisions we make in life come with two-way doors. In other words, you can walk into a new room, and if you don't like what you see, you can walk back out. And usually what looks like a one-way door is, is actually a two-way door if you get creative about it. So, And this framework, by the way, was the reason why 
I was able to leave the practice of law and go into academia. I remember thinking, you know, I thought about this for months before finally deciding to apply for, for academic positions. And I think I was operating under the assumption that once I left the firm I was practicing for in San Francisco, there would be no coming back. But that is a faulty assumption. I could go into academia, which is why I did. I took a two-year temporary non-tenure track job in Chicago, uh, which incidentally is where I ended up meeting my wife. But I, it was an experiment for me. And I thought to myself, look, I'm still, pra I'm still licensed to practice law. And if I don't like teaching for two years, I could always go back. Probably not to the firm that I, I used to work for, but to, to a different firm. So I think writing those out, thinking through the decisions you're, you're facing in terms of that one-way door and two-way door lens. And then also asking the two questions I mentioned before when I, when I was talking through my, my mindset in sending the, the email to Professor Squires, the principal investigator for that Mars mission, what's the worst that can happen? And if this were to happen, what would I do about it? And actually writing, writing that down. And then what's the best that can happen? To me, that's, that's also really helpful with with grappling with uncertainty, because often what we fear is, uh, the feeling of fear is worse than what is actually to be feared. And so writing down those answers as a way of, of, of undressing your fears and, and seeing them with their masks off and, and you, you realize that they're not nearly as threatening as they might be if you just let them percolate in your head. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I love the framework. Those two questions, that's interesting. I have sort of like a similar set of prompts for myself. I add one question in. It sounds like you actually, you have this, but you don't break it out. So I'll ask myself, you know, like, what is the worst case scenario? What is the best case scenario? And then how will I recover if the worst case scenario mm -hmm. happens? Like, let, let me map out the plan. Right. Because that tends to be the thing that shows you that, like, okay, so it may hurt, right. but most times you're going to be okay. But then I also, there's actually a fourth question that I add to my analysis, which is what if I do nothing? Mm. You know, what if I just keep on keeping on? And fascinatingly for me, at least, and for probably a number of people I've asked this to, the most terrifying long-term outcome is the answer to that question. <laughs> not the failure one, right. you know, because if things are not quite, things are okay, but really not quite right now, you know, life applies friction. There's no sideways. 
So if you keep, you know, if you keep projecting out a year, five years, 10 years, you kind of think, well, you know, wow, what's my life going to be like? What's my health like? What's my happiness going to be like? My fulfillment. If I don't do anything about this thing, I'm not going to feel the same. I'm actually going to be in a pretty dark place if I'm really being honest. And when you sort of, when you tell those stories, you know, like the failure and recovery story, the what if I do nothing story, and the what if I succeed story, it becomes really, I found it becomes super motivating. Um, you shared something else, which is, um, I love this framework that you have, the one-way door, the two-way door. Um, it also aligns, you, you and I apparently think in frameworks a lot. Um, <laughs> so so the frame that I often bring um, is a distinction between what I would call ripcord versus stampede uncertainty, mm. You know, which is a thing where the ripcord uncertainty is a thing where you have intentionally invited this in. And inviting it out again may hurt it may require a lot of recovery and loss of prestige, power, money. Um, but you always have one hand on the ripcord if you want it. You know, whereas stampede uncertainty is this, it, it happens from the outside in. You're in the middle of a stampede. You're getting bounced all around. Mm. You have no idea if you're going to survive. But you, and you have no ability or control to remove yourself from that scenario. So like when we talk about the world of business, we're almost always talking about it from a ripcord or a, um, a two-way door standpoint. But when we talk about how we live in the context of life and circumstances, you know, like what we're all living through right now, mm -hmm. I feel like navigating those two types of uncertainty is different. And I'm curious if, if you feel that there's a distinction with that too. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you that there is a distinction between the two. Um, so ripcord being the sense that you can pull yourself out of that situation. Yep. It might not be fun, but you yeah. have the power. Whereas in a stampede, you don't have the power to pull yourself out. Yeah. No, I think I, I do think there's a distinction between between the two. I agree with you. I think from my perspective, I try to not get into to the stampede sort of uncertainty or put myself in positions where that's going to be where there is no ripcord. And the way that I think through this is I don't, for example, bet the, you know, the life of my platform on a single thing. I think that is a situation where you can find yourself in a stampede and there is no way of getting out because the the one thing, like if I was building my career around um, professional speaking in front of live audiences, I would be in a stampede right now. You know, I would have no control over what was going on. Um, but if you diversify yourself, which is what I try to do, I think you're less likely to find yourself in a stampede. So instead of, and this actually also helps with, with ego as well. So if you, if you define yourself as, as a speaker, if you define yourself as a professor and only a professor, it becomes really hard to walk away from that um, because you've invested so much in, into that title. And it becomes also really hard. You find yourself in a stampede when a crisis comes along and that line of work for one reason or the other is just no longer available to you. But if, you, if you're able to diversify yourself and really diversify your identity, so you're not just defining yourself as a professor, but you're a professor who writes mainstream books who, that have nothing to do with law, which is what I do, who also you know, blogs and does professional speaking. And it, when you do that, it becomes a lot easier, I think, to walk away from one of those identities. If you've got four things going for you, you can say, all right, well, this is not working. So professional speaking, live speaking is off the table. Let me lean on one of these other identities. Or for me, if I'm no longer deriving enjoyment from, from being in academia, I can walk away from that more easily because the ego takes a less of a hit. You can just rely on some of these other identities and some of these other hats you, you, you crafted for yourself. And so, so I think it works. So diversification of your identity, I think, helps in both of those. One, you, you're less likely to find yourself in stampede, and you're more likely to walk away from an, an identity that's no longer serving you. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting way to frame it. I'm thinking that, I'm sort of thinking that through in terms of my own life. And, you know, I, as a general rule, set up hedges. 
Yeah. You know, I quote diversify, you know, so I'm in the media business. I'm in the consulting business. I'm in the, you know, like I, I write, I, so, and I think a lot of, um, on the one hand, it allows me to run a series of experiments and, and just have fun creating a whole bunch of different things. But it also does play this other role of creating a certain amount of hedge against, well, if this goes south, this might still be okay. Um, you know, as you're speaking, there's another distinction that sort of came to my mind in the context of us not just surviving, but actually being able to see possibility in hmm. the space of uncertainty and harness it and build around it which is the social context of making decisions and taking actions and investing in resourcing things when the world is spinning around you. I'm sure you're familiar with there. There's a you know, famous paradox, the Ellsberg paradox that essentially, you know, presents people with two different urns. One has 50 black marbles and 50 red marbles. The other has a hundred black and red marbles, but you have no idea what the, the distribution is. And somebody's told, you know, like, choose a jar and tell me what color the marble is going to be. And you'll either win a thousand dollars or lose a thousand dollars. So the stakes are high. And most people tend towards the jar with the known 50, 50 distribution. Right. There's no rational basis for that. And so people are like, well, why would we really shy away from uncertainty? And then I, I was able to actually discover fMRI studies that show that the amygdala lights up much more powerfully, the fear center in our brain, when we consider pulling the marble from the jar where we don't know the distribution. Mm. And then there was one other really fascinating context, and this is kind of where I'm getting with you, where um, a team ran essentially the same experiment, but they told the people, you don't ever have to tell anyone. You just like make it up in your mind, mm. or write it down on a piece of paper and nobody will see the paper. The bias away from uncertainty vanished. <laughs> and what they realized was there's a huge social context so it's not just that we're afraid of making decisions and allocating resources in the face of uncertainty. We're afraid of being judged and outcast for being wrong when we, when we do that. And when you remove that, we're much more comfortable in the face of that. And that's why I was curious because mm. to me, um, we tend to look at the, like the ripcord, um, you know, or the thing that you can pull out of as it, you know, it's, it's kind of like the easier one to navigate. But I've increasingly been wondering, especially you know, over the course of this year, I think that's why I'm thinking about this, when that uncertainty is, is, is imposed from the outside in, and we have done nothing, and, and it's normalized because everybody is in it with us, does that maybe actually lessen or remove the social context of making a radical move and maybe even make it easier? And it's, it's been a real curiosity of mine. I'm, I'm curious what you think of that. Yeah, I love that. Uh, the, the social context that goes along with, uh, with the decision-making on their uncertainty, because you're right. I think part of the fear of uncertainty is coming from, well, if I do this thing and if it doesn't work, what will other people think? You know, are they going to point and laugh? Are they going to call me names? What am I going to look like? Um, and I think those fears were certainly, certainly existent for me when I was thinking about, you know, when I started my blog and I was still, a, you know, a, a professor and, and I still am, but I'm on my way out. And so that decision, that framework, I think the social context is is a really important piece of it. And I do agree that I think diversification allows you to save face in a way, right? Because you're saying, look, you know, and, and I think that was partially why I was able to decide to leave academia is because my book came out in April and it's been really successful and I've been able to do all of these things. And now that that identity is blossoming, I feel more comfortable abandoning the, um, the professor identity. And so, yeah, so there is a huge social component to that. And, and that can get in the way of, of, well, of, of deciding to, to make a leap into the unknown. Uh, there's a Chinese proverb that I love, which, which your question of like, what if I do nothing, which is such a powerful one. Uh, and I'm going to add that into my repertoire. There's a Chinese proverb that I love that illustrates that. It, it goes something like, you know, many a false step was made by standing still. Um, it can often be more risky to stick with the status quo than, than take a leap into the unknown. And, and if there is any way that you can lessen the social impact that comes from 
And I think this goes hand in hand with the fear of failure too, which also has a social component to it, right? If you fail, then you feel like you're going to be shamed or embarrassed in, in public. But yeah, if there's anything you can do, and, and, and if diversifying your identity certainly does that for me to lessen that, then that's that's great. Yeah, it's a, it's such an interesting approach, something I want to sort of like play with in my mind a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the other things that you, you, you've written about, you speak about, and it's certainly um, something that you touch on in uh, your book as well, it's kind of the idea of breaking down the silos, cross-pollination of ideas, mm -hmm. um, and how we tend to be so focused on the one domain that we're in and becoming the experts in that one area and then believing that we know what we need to know to solve the problem. But so often what we think is us doing the best we can and rising up and being as accomplished as we can and as capable at doing really innovative, cool new work actually is not the reality on the ground. Yeah, for sure. I think they, if you look at you know, the history of innovation, some of the most breakthrough products that we enjoy today happen because of cross-pollination. Um, life doesn't happen in these isolated, compartmentalized silos. And I think we do ourselves a disservice by just remaining in that one silo and, and not exposing ourselves to, to other disciplines. And one of the examples I give in the book is the, the founding of Netflix. You know, Reed Hastings had he had rented Apollo 13 and incurred a bunch of late fees. Um, and he's working out at his gym and he's, he's upset uh, at having to pay $40 to Blockbuster. And it, it occurs to him that the model used in his gym, you can work out as much or as little as you want and you pay $20 for it. There are no late fees. Can be imported into the video rental industry, which is a seed that ended up blossoming into, into Netflix. I mean, the seemingly simple idea, really well-established idea in the fitness industry created a revolution in, in the streaming industry. That's why I think a lot of the modern gate crashers tend to be outsiders to the industry that they ended up disrupting. You know, like Jeff Bezos was, he was in finance before he started Amazon. Reed Hastings was a, a computer programmer. Uh, Elon Musk was a Silicon Valley guy when he started SpaceX and he learned about rocket science by reading textbooks. Uh, Sarah Blakely was selling fax machines door to door before she started Spanx and ended up becoming the world's youngest self-made female billionaire. I think with anything though, it's possible you don't want to be a dilettante where you're just sort of dabbling in, in so many different things and there isn't sufficient depth. I think that the, the people who really make an impact tend to be sort of these specialized generalists where they, they exist in the middle ground between specialization, extreme specialization on the one hand and generalization on the other hand, where they know enough about a number of fields to be dangerous, uh, where they can really see the parallels between those fields. They're not just sort of dabbling in them and you know dipping their toes into these multiple different pools, but really know enough about each area to be able to take concepts from one and apply them, apply them to, to the others. Yeah. I, and I love that. And, and, and also maybe even to know, and this is something you speak about, you know, it doesn't always also always have to be one person who kind of, sure. you know, is dangerous in a handful of fields. Sometimes it's enough to know that, well, maybe, you know, somebody from a completely different domain than me with a different lens is going to be able to just light something up. You have the great example of um, Harry Potter and right. like, the editor's daughter in the book. Share that <laughs> that story. It's great. Yeah, sure. So when J.K. Rowling first submitted the, the the first Harry Potter book, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, to publishers, they were unanimous in their opinion. They all thought that the book was not worth printing until the manuscript ended up on the desk of Nigel Newton, who is the head of Bloomsbury Publishing in the UK. Uh, and And Newton had a secret weapon... Uh, by the name of Alice, his eight-year-old daughter. And what he did was he brought home the first chapter from the book and just gave it to Alice. And Alice uh, took the first chapter to her room. She devoured it. She came back down and she said, Dad, this is so much better than anything else I've read. And that input from Alice convinced her father to write a, I think a 2,500 pound check to J.K. Rowling, to acquire the rights to publish Harry Potter. Obviously the best bet made in publishing history and all because Nigel Newton was willing to step outside his echo chamber and get the opinion of someone who's an outsider to the publishing industry, but an insider, 
for the audience that that the book was was written for you. So you're absolutely right. So it doesn't have to be you. It can be other people who are in your circle. But I think where we come up short is we surround ourselves by people like us. Like we befriend people like us who think like us, who see the, the world through the same perspective. This happens all the time in businesses where you know you end up hiring hiring the same people uh, over and over again uh, who walk the same path that you did. And this is why this is a prevalent problem in academia, where if you look at the ranks of elite law school, or elite schools, period, they come from the, the you know, they're all the graduates of the same few elite institutions. Uh, because once you're a faculty at that institution, then you end up hiring people who follow a very similar path to you. And and I think that is a is a recipe for disaster in many ways because it creates this environment of groupthink uh, where you're hearing the same views echoed over and and over again. So yeah, so I think outsiders or other people can be a really rich source of cross-pollination as long as you make a point to actually surround yourself with people who don't look at the world the same way that you do. I mean, so much of that is about intention, right? Also, because I think so often we are driven by the quest not for truth but for validation mm-hmm. and and you know when when that is what we want because it makes us feel good you know then we surround ourselves with the people who will validate whatever idea that we have but then we often we you know we never know if it's good we never know if it could be exponentially better and we never know if it's just outright horrible also i love um adam grant was recently sharing how when he writes a book now he um he put together he has sort of like a team of what he calls challengers right you know and he would have champions and all these other people now he explicitly has like i think it's his research assistants and his grad students and stuff like that and and they are empowered he says basically okay so here's the chapter this week go at it like just Mm -hmm. shred this thing show me every possible way that i could be wrong or off and he does it in the name of wanting to really identify the bad stuff quickly see if it's refinable or changeable or optimizable if it's not throw it out and if it is make it you know 10 times better and um i think we're terrified of doing that in our regular lives this goes back to the social context again right because we're terrified of not knowing everything and not always being right we want to be seen as the people who are smart and correct and we know you know like the appropriate and the right thing to do and we're on the right track rather than just saying Dude, I have no idea. Right. Because we don't at the end of the day. <laughs> and if you look at it rationally, you know, like if you consider social context from Adam's perspective, he'd much rather know about those mistakes before the book is published, right? From his research assistants and not afterwards from 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 the public. Uh, so he can correct correct the errors in the book before it actually um, hits the press machine. And, and so, and, and I think what he does is brilliant because usually research assistants might be, they might be reluctant to raise their hands and say, you know what, I don't know if this is right, or I don't know if I agree with this, uh, or here's a counter argument that you haven't thought of. But if you go out and you affirmatively say, I want you to challenge this, I want you to poke holes in this, tell me where I, what I missed, uh, tell me where you're getting bored. That gives them psychological safety to actually come forward because now your your boss, your professor is telling you that that's exactly what I'm looking for and then following through. So not just sort of paying lip service to it, but actually rewarding uh, when it does happen, when students do come back and say, you know, here's a mistake or here's something you didn't think of, um, actually following through on your commitments, that's how you spot your blind spots and that's how you fix these errors before they you know, turn into something far more embarrassing than being corrected by one of your research assistants. Yeah. And like you said, I was so much rather to have that, you know, have that, yeah, like loving smackdown from a, a, a small right. group of research assistants <laughs> I'm close to than, you know, you go public with a book and it's out there and then all of a sudden the world just piles on you and rightfully so it's going to be <laughs> exactly. a whole lot more painful. I, I mean, it's interesting that all the things that we've been talking about, you know, they're in the context in part in life, in part in careers, um, a lot in the context of business too, but it really is, you zoom the ones out and the fundamental tenets of how to live a good life. You know, it's really about, you know, how I've, I've got a limited amount of time, of energy, of resources, of days in my life. And how do I put it to good use, which I think is a good place for us to come full circle as well. So, you know, we're sitting here in this container of the Good Life Project. 
if I offer out the phrase to live a good life? What comes up? Hmm. I think for me, living a good life is being true to who I am, really getting in touch with who I am, not what the world tells me I should be, not what I thought of myself a month ago, a year ago, but who I am now. Like, who, who am I right now at this moment? I think that figuring that the answer to that question and then structuring your life accordingly, that to me is, is living a good life. Mm, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Com, or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.